Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Tonight on The Readout. And when a Republican candidate in a swing state like Pennsylvania makes banning abortion a central focus of their campaign without any exceptions, for example, for rape, incest or the life of the mother, well, that Republican, politically speaking, is probably going to lose badly and drag the entire party down with them. So the question tonight, with our country slipping away, will Republicans learn from their election mistakes or are they doomed to repeat them? The sheer panic on the right after another really good election night for Democrats, with Republicans like Hannity finally realizing that the party's toxic, regressive, authoritarian policies have sparked a voter backlash. Also tonight, new reporting that Donald Trump almost certainly knew that a president cannot declassify documents just by stuffing them in a box and hauling them to the old golf resort, as he repeatedly has claimed. Plus, Elon Musk's off-the-rails interview, the man who runs one of the biggest social media sites, raises alarms with toxic comments about George Soros and the Texas mall shooter, among other things. But we begin tonight with the Republicans' toxic brand. Remember the 2022 midterms, the red wave that felt more like an orange trickle? Well, that keeps happening. Last night was another really bad night for the Republican Party, with several key races in Florida, Pennsylvania, and Colorado, underscoring how the right-wing grip on our politics is slipping. In Florida, Democrat Donna Deegan won the mayor's race in Jacksonville, which had been the largest city in the United States with a Republican mayor. Also last night, outside Philadelphia, Democrat Heather Boyd beat Republican Katie Ford in the special election for a Pennsylvania state House seat, allowing Democrats to keep control of that chamber. In Colorado Springs, independent candidate Yemi Mowalade won the mayoral race against Republican Wayne Williams. The result was a blow to Republicans, whose dear leader won El Paso County, which includes Colorado Springs, by 11 points in 2020. They are losing all over the country because their brand is toxic, even deadly. It's not that complicated. People undergoing dangerous miscarriages do not want to be turned away at emergency rooms, forced to bleed out in the parking lot. Young people don't want to worry about dying in their classrooms. Parents don't want their elementary school kids learning how to pack bleeding wounds during a mass shooting. And then they wonder why they can't win. No matter how they dress up, these issues, calling them pro-life, which at this point is just laughable gaslighting, or the right to bear arms, which is code for the right to kill whoever I want with my AR-15 or my bare hands. Voters are proving that this is not what most Americans want. Which brings us to Ron DeSantis, the avatar of white grievance politics, whose would-be presidential platform caters to minority fringe positions and fake problems. Tuesday was a bad night for DeSantis in particular. Two of the candidates that he endorsed flopped in their races. Instead, it was Trump's pick that defeated the DeSantis-backed candidate in Kentucky's closely watched gubernatorial primary. The winner, Daniel Cameron, is a Mitch McConnell-groomed candidate 
to his attorney general refused to charge Breonna Taylor's killers. The endorsement fight just shows what DeSantis is up against as he stakes his political future on the idea that the only way to replace Trump is to be even more cruel and more extreme than Trump is. And so he signs a six-week abortion ban, announcing it quietly late at night because maybe the women won't notice while they're sleeping. And why he wages wars against Mickey Mouse and children's books and banning diversity and history in Florida schools and colleges, dangling the critical race theory, trans and migrant boogeymen in front of base Republicans while firing educators and prosecutors who won't do his bidding. All while insurance companies flee his hurricane-ravaged state, along with construction site and agricultural workers. But we are seeing the backlash to this gross, oppressive Republican overreach. These special elections prove it. Last year's midterms proved it. I mean, do you actually think that this is what America wants? This freakish war against everything, everywhere, all at once? Come on. It's not. You know it's not. Which is why Donna Deegan made history last night, becoming Jacksonville's first woman mayor while flipping the mayor's office in a longtime Republican stronghold. It's why Pennsylvania voters kept Democrats in control over how the chamber will handle abortion and gun rights and election laws. The reality is, the closer you get to Trumpism, the more you lose. And yes, Republicans, you can steal that line for your autopsy report. And joining me now is Nikki Fried, chair of the Florida Democratic Party, and Tom Bonnier, CEO of Target Smart. And I do want to go to you first, Nikki, and give you your flowers, because, you know, the Democratic Party uh, has long been assailed for its lack of competence, including by me. I lived in Florida, so I feel the right to diss the Florida Democrats. And I've dissed them a lot. You know that. Um, but this was actually a huge win. This was the 12th largest city in America. It's long been governed by Republicans. What do you think Donna Deegan's sort of special powers were here? Or was it more the issues on the other side? It was a combination of all of it. And first of all, it was a tremendous win for Florida Democrats last night because it wasn't just Donna's win. We took six out of nine of the seats. So we also elected, so Donna's the first female to ever be mayor of Jacksonville. We also elected the first ever black female property appraiser and and four other uh, down ballots on our city council races. So what happened here was a combination of a few things. One, Donna is a fantastic candidate. Um, She never went negative. She stayed positive the whole time where the Republican opponent went even further right. Um, So you saw even in the results last night that the Republicans did outpace us when it comes to the actual voters. But you saw over you saw almost 13000 crossovers between NPAs, uh, no party affiliates and Republicans. This is a a trend that is happening across the country, as you've alluded to. But it's happening here in Florida that people are starting to reject the radicalization of, of the Republican Party and certainly the Republican party under Ron DeSantis, who has taken our state in such a dangerous direction. You know, and Tom, this has been, so there's been a theory of the case, I think, by Ron DeSantis in particular, that the that he has to get to the right of Donald Trump on everything and go really to the extremes and the fringes of the party. I mean, banning AP black history, getting almost into a fight with black fraternities and sororities where they nearly got banned, um, the stop woke stuff, fighting Disney, you know, teachers being fired or have, being forced to resign because they played a Disney movie. It's gotten real extreme in Florida. Is this part of the backlash? And is is it what you've expected? You've been looking at these numbers for over a year. Yeah, it's it's unquestionably uh, part of the backlash. Yeah. Uh, to your point, you know, it's not new that candidates need to tack a little bit to uh, one side or the other for a primary. But right. what we're seeing and what Trump has done in transforming this party entirely. Yeah. And then really reinforced by the Dobbs decision last year. Yeah. Seeing Ron DeSantis now running as fast as he can. 
towards Trump and really even past him. Yeah. What we're seeing and what we saw last night is very much uh, the end result. It's seen Democrats uh, and independents fired up and really rejecting that. It's what we saw in key states last year in the midterm election where extremists were on the ballot yep. and where voters believed they had an opportunity to do something about it. Yeah. Democrats won. And, and I mean, Nikki, the six week abortion ban, I mean, you literally protested it. You were literally arrested protesting the six week abortion ban. Are there it seems to me the, the, the dumbest political move that a person who wants to run for president could make would be to push for that ban. Who's giving, you know, DeSantis the idea or the advice that that's where he needed to go? It seems like that is going to just fire up Democratic voters next year. I think that he's getting actual political advice. This is just who Ron DeSantis is. You know, we all know that on New Year's Eve two years ago, he was with the evangelical church. And then the 15 week abortion ban that's right now on the law, it came out like six weeks later. This is who Ron is. And when he doesn't have to to, to play to the middle, which is after a 19 point win, a supermajority in, in our state, he got to just be him. Um, all homophobic, racist as he is, he just got to be himself. And unfortunately, um, you know, this is the end result that we have a six week abortion ban in our state. Um, we've, you know, put permitless carry on on the books. Um, just today, he had three bills that went after our LGBTQ plus community. And it just keeps going over and over and over again. Every single day, he's just being himself. 800,000 migrants are going to leave the state of Florida. You were alluding to it earlier also. I don't know who's going to be doing the picking of, of the fields during the harvest and who's building all these new homes for everybody who's moving to our state. They're all yeah. going to be gone. And and he's going to have crippled our economy because he's got such a, a, a distaste and distrust for people that don't look like him and pray like him. I mean, that is the sort of odd thing about it is, is Ron DeSantis is trying to build his sort of presidential campaign on the fact that he's effective, right? He's like, I'm Trump, but more effective. But if the migrant workers all leave your state and construction projects are going without workers and having to shut down and the agricultural industry can't find workers— you can't build a big enough white ethno state to find enough people to replace them. So is the Christian white ethno state going to somehow supply these workers or the insurance companies that are leaving? Is that going to be supplied by the Christian church? Like who? I don't understand the electoral strategy here and why. I have to be honest, the media has sort of dubbed him as some sort of improvement to Trump. He backed the more extreme, the more far right sort of culture warrior candidate in Kentucky, for instance. That person lost to a regular order Mitch McConnell Republican who also had Trump's endorsement. He's losing the endorsement race to Trump. He's losing the victories race to, to Trump, who lost a bunch of races. I don't understand it as a strategy. No. Well, it, it's more baffling. There was new data that came out this week, an analysis that showed that the white working class, the white non-college, I should say, yeah. share of the electorate has steadily declined by about two point share in every election over right. about the past decade. And so what that means is for Republicans, they're appealing to an ever narrowing chunk of the electorate. Um, and the math didn't add up for them last time, they'll have to do even more this time around. It's it's a, a very narrow path and a very bizarre strategy. It, this is what uh, Daniel Cameron said last night. Um, he thanked Donald Trump for his support, and he said— 
the Trump culture of winning is alive and well in Kentucky. Like, that doesn't make any sense because, yes, he won the short-term race here for the, the, the primary, but who does he think is he's going to add? Black voters ain't voting for Daniel Cameron, the guy who let the Breonna Taylor killers off the hook. They're going to vote for Bashir. So how does he add enough people to be able to defeat an incumbent governor? I don't see the math math in there either. I took that as more of the big lie. Yeah. Talking about Trump as the winner, right, who we know didn't win. And again, the path, you know, maybe they rely on the fact that Kentucky is different, right? Yeah. The math there is slightly different. But when you look at the Democratic governor who has good ratings, good favorability ratings, the path still is quite narrow, to your point. And when you're appealing to such a small segment of the electorate, you're intentionally narrowing your path to the point where it becomes almost implausible. This is what I don't understand. I'm just looking at these notes here. 72 percent of voters oppose banning the 1619 Project or other works on slavery and race um, and don't consider them racially divisive. Nearly two in three oppose banning the abortion pill. Seventy six percent of U.S. adults favor requiring criminal and mental background checks for those buying guns. Fourteen percent. Only 14 percent of U.S. adults think that that drag shows should be banned. Republicans are picking issue after issue that are super minority issues. They don't even have 50 percent support for any of the things they're doing. What is the motivation to keep doing them? The motivation is to appeal to this base. It's it's the toothpaste is out of the tube. They don't know how to go back. Right. They lose their base on one side. Colorado Springs. We haven't talked yeah. much about that. Yes, but you talked yeah. about that in the intro. That's a city that is plus 20 Republican and party wow. registration. And the Democrat won that race. Well, he's a Democratic-leaning independent. Yes. Right. right. But the Republican right. didn't so, win is the bottom right. line. Nonpartisan race yeah. on the ballot. Yeah. But, but someone registered as a Democrat won. You know, again, we talked about Jacksonville. It just shows, to your point, the strategy isn't working for them, but they don't know how to get out of it at this point. Does does the, Repub the, Dem the Republican-controlled Senate and House in Florida know how to back out of it? And I don't know if behind the scenes, Nikki, any of those folks have come to you in, underst in understanding that they're digging a hole for themselves, even in a state like Florida, that we'd all been saying is red now, but it doesn't seem so red after that victory in Jacksonville. Yeah, I think, Joy, I heard a lot from our, our senators and from our House members, not just this session, but even the, the previous session. They're miserable that they don't want to be doing this, this radical agenda from Ron DeSantis. They are not happy. They know that they're going into a very dark path, that they got to go home and, and be able to now defend in their own districts um, everything that they just passed this legislative session. And they are digging this hole, but you, I don't know if you saw today, but 99 of them came out today and endorsed Ron DeSantis. He's holding them hostage because yeah. he, he still has, he still hasn't, you know, done the budget yet. So he has threatened vetoes of their budget priorities. He's threatened vetoes of their priority pieces of legislation, has threatened to primary them in their next elections. So he's holding the legislature hostage. This is not who so many of them are. And if granted, there's going to be a handful that that have drank the Kool-Aid and believe in, in this ideology. But for everybody else, they, they know that this is a death march. And unfortunately, they, they don't know how to pedal backwards until he truly starts to lose ground in, in key states like Iowa and New Hampshire and the recognition that he's not going to be the nominee. Or in districts like in New York. I mean, so you have George Santos, um, his communications directors quit today. That is a race, Tom, that looks like Democrats could pick that up. I mean, they're sticking to this guy. Even I'm not sure they even know if that's his real name at this point. Well, in the indictment, we know his real name now. But that is their guy, and they won't even let him go. No, they can't. It, it's again, it's this, it's this trap that they're in. And they won the House in these seats in New York and California. That was the margin. Yeah. And these are seats that Democrats 
could and should win. Abortion wasn't on the ballot the way it should have been and could have been in New yeah. York and California last time around. You better yeah. believe it will be this time around. In, yeah. In that district especially, I don't see how they hold it. And in Pennsylvania, where now Democrats have the ability to put a ballot measure on the books, which is going to hurt Republicans. And everywhere they play the abortion game, they lose. Nikki Freed, Tom Bonnier, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, damning new evidence from the National Archives may undercut Trump's incoherent claims about how he wound up with boxes full of classified documents after leaving office. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Just so you understand, I had every right to do it. I didn't make a secret of it. You know, the boxes were stationed outside of the White House. People were taking pictures of the GSA and the various I people. Your- I took the documents I'm allowed to. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. Ever since it became public that classified documents were found at Donald Trump's Florida Country Club after he left the White House, Trump has mounted the defense that simply by taking them with him, the documents automatically became declassified. He even said that as president, he could declassify documents just by thinking about it. Anyone who's ever worked with classified documents can tell you that that is not how it works, even for a president. And now it appears there is new evidence that shows Trump and his top advisors actually knew the proper declassification process while he was president. And tonight, CNN is reporting that the normally very quiet National Archives has notified Trump that it is set to hand over to special counsel Jack Smith 16 records that confirm Trump and his team were informed how to properly declassify documents. The letter sent to Trump to that effect states that the documents all reflect communications involving close presidential advisors, some of them directed to you personally concerning whether, why, and how you should declassify certain classified records, according to multiple sources. According to that letter, unless prohibited by an intervening court order, those records will be handed over next Wednesday, which they were not. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Alabama School of Law and MSNBC political analyst, and president in charge of talking me down. Uh, but this time, I feel like you won't have to talk me down, uh, Joyce, because look, this is the thing. Doc, you, you're always saying this, and we, we love taking the class with you on the, on the show. Documents, documents, documents. It's not just allegations, it's documents. If the National Archives has 16 different documents showing that they told Trump and his team, this is how you declassify documents, what would be his defense at that point? Right. So this defense has always been pretty slim, Joy. It clearly doesn't work. It flies in the face of how the classification process works. 
but apparently Jack Smith sent subpoenas to the National Archives earlier this year, and they came up with a pretty large group of documents that they said were potentially responsive. This is much of the information that Smith has now asked them to turn over. And look, I have to say that as a prosecutor, you would be happy to have one document that right. confirmed that your defendant understood how the classification process worked. To have 16, that sounds a little bit like hitting the mother load, although we don't know exactly what these documents are. Well, and the thing is, is that it also seems that, as you said, we don't know what the documents are. We just know that they're, they've informed him that they're going to send them to Jack Smith. But here's the problem. Donald Trump's lawyers and he don't seem to be on the same page. This is what Trump's lawyers said last month to Congress, suggesting it was an accident or an oversight that he had the documents. Quote, we have seen absolutely no indication that President Trump knowingly possessed any of the marked documents or willfully broke any laws. Rather, all indications are that the presence of marked documents at Mar-a-Lago was the result of haphazard record keeping and packing by White House staff and GSA. Now, is that is that good news that his lawyers thought that if, in fact, the National Archives instructed the White House on how to declassify documents? This is why, as a criminal defense lawyer, you don't want your client conducting national town halls on CNN um, yeah. because your client may go south on you. And that's what Trump did here. Look, this was essentially their only defense where they maybe had a chance of convincing a juror to. It was chaos during the transition. And some of this stuff ended up in Mar-a-Lago. Who knows how? But now Trump has shot his own best defense out of the water. He is stuck yeah. with this magical declassification defense. Um, so this is from last summer. Um, ludicrous, ridiculous, a complete fiction. Uh, former Trump's officials claim that he had a standing order to declassify documents. 18 former top Trump administration officials have told CNN that they never heard any such order issued during the time working for Trump and that they believe the claim to be patently false. Several officials even laughed at this idea so that even if there was some sort of magical declassification system, which doesn't exist, Donald Trump never said to anyone at the time contemporaneously that he was declassifying things. That seems to me to also be a problem. I think it is a problem. And it just, again, this is not how declassification works. One suspects that if there is a trial in this case, there will be people who will have worked in the intelligence community and they will do a powerful job of explaining to the jury that declassification isn't a privilege that makes the president's life easier. That's how Donald Trump seems to treat it. This is a, a remarkable trust that the public places in the commander in chief. This notion of what information is so important that releasing it to the wrong people could do grave damage to our national security. That's the language that underlies this notion of, of top secret classified information. Trump is so cavalier in his treatment of this. This is the sort of thing that you can see blowing up uh, in his face in a trial setting. So I think one of the frustrations that people have had is how long all of this is taking. But if you had the National Archives just now sending these 16 documents, whatever they are, over to Jack Smith's office, is the problem here that just more new stuff keeps coming up and that you can't close an investigation when your investigation keeps turning up more things? In your view, could that be what's taking so long for this to come to a conclusion? It looks to me like there are two things here, and part of it is exactly as you say. It's important for DOJ 
contemplating prosecuting a former president for the first time to make sure they dot all of their I's and cross their T's. They will have to convince a jury of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But I'm also going to read the tea leaves a little bit here, Joy, and say it looks to me like Trump was at it again, delaying the process, because Mm. these subpoenas were sent earlier this year. It looks like Trump wanted to quibble about what could be turned over. He's entitled to do that to some extent. The Biden White House said that they wouldn't contest executive privilege on any of these documents. And clearly, Joe Biden's claim there is superior. But there was some back and forth with the Trump folks as they continued to assert executive privilege. The source from the Trump side of things who spoke to CNN today said that he was trying to protect the presidency and its prerogatives, something that just does not ring true here. Yeah, the whole thing is so odd and so strange, but it just seems to be so patently illegal. We've had multiple people who've been prosecuted for taking classified documents. This guy held on to them for 18 months. I cannot imagine how that could not be illegal, but we will see what happens. Uh, Joyce Vance, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And still ahead, a dark time for women's reproductive rights in America. But if recent elections are any guide, that may be changing sooner than any Republicans would like. the abortion pill, Mifepri Stone, is once again in the hands of a couple of conservative judges. Today, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments over whether the drug that's used in more than half of abortions nationwide should remain widely available. That court, however, is considered to be the most conservative federal appeals court in the country, consisting of three judges, two Trump appointees, one George W. Bush appointee, all of whom have a history of supporting abortion restrictions. Today, unsurprisingly, those judges grilled and at times interrupted the government attorney arguing to preserve access to the drug. One even scolded the lawyer for Danko, the company that manufactures Mifepristone, for harshly criticizing Judge Matthew Kesmarek. A decision could take weeks, even months, but ultimately, this case is expected to set the stage for an inevitable return to the Supreme Court. In the meantime, North Carolina is joining the long list of states where Republicans are pushing through abortion bans. Last night, with the help of a formerly pro-choice Democrat turned hardline Republican, the state legislature was able to override Governor Roy Cooper's veto of the bill that bans the procedure after 12 weeks, as protesters in the state capitol chanted shame. The sergeant-at-arms will clear those who can't follow the rules. Joining me now is Minnie Timuraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. And that scene of women weeping and chanting shame while a man bangs the gavel and basically tells them, if you can't be quiet and let us strip you of your rights, you can get out. Mm. It felt very Taliban to me. And, and, and I, you know, I bring up Taliban a lot with my, my, my poor beleaguered team. But the thing about Republicans now is that they are acting in a very Taliban-esque way. They are a religious group of extremists who they definitely don't care about children. They want to control women. They want total control over women. And they are exercising that control. Let's put up the map. All across the former slave states and in states in the West that they control, while women have no power to stop them, or a few like Trisha Cotham join them. And then these women wake up in a, in a state where they have no rights. What to do? 
You know, we have, you had a conversation with Tom just now, Tom Bonnier. You know, we know that more and more Republicans are actually with us on abortion rights, right? Uh, we just did some research with Change Research. Uh, 73% of Republicans, three out of five independents, 51% of Donald Trump supporters don't want politicians interfering in these decisions. Actually, a majority of rural white men in this research were with us. So it's wild to watch yeah. these Republicans commit this extreme overreach. Uh, and what to do is we just have to keep mobilizing and getting folks turned out. You know, there was a series of elections yesterday. We've got some in the fall. We've got some next year. It's never too early for organizations like ours and our colleagues and our allies to be drawing the clear contrast and shouting from the rooftops how extreme these folks are, because we know it bears repeating. We have to keep this in the news. Appreciate your coverage. We need a lot more coverage. Yeah. And let me just read about these judges. This is what political wrote about them. Jennifer Walker Elrod, an appointee of George. George W. Bush has repeatedly ruled to uphold state abortion restrictions. James Ho and Corey Wilson have backgrounds in conservative politics. Ho called abortion a moral tragedy in a 2018 opinion. Wilson is a longtime critic of the Roe decision and voted while in Mississippi state legislature in the Mississippi state legislature to ban abortion at 15 and six weeks of pregnancy and to strip funding from Planned Parenthood. So what we now have is the merger of right wing extreme Christian right politicians and the judiciary. So they're not, their rulings are predictable based on their politics, not That's based right. on the law. I mean, this is why compared to the Taliban, when they took over in the 1990s, people were like, yes, they'll be great because they're anti-corruption. And then they found out what they really are. They want total religious control over that population. Republicans are behaving the same way. I, I, just going through a couple of these things. Yep. Um, in Alabama, and Louisiana. So in Alabama, a new bill would make it possible to charge women who undergo abortions with murder. In Louisiana, the legislature's criminal justice committee opted not to clarify that miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies are exempt from the abortion ban. 57% of North Carolinians supported a 20-week ban and then would expand it, while 35% want the procedure restricted to 15 weeks or less. They don't have majority support, and they're doing things like that. So this is hand in glove with the attacks on our democracy. Right. We know the majority of Americans are with us on these issues, on this, these issues, gun violence prevention, it's super majority, super majority. So what can they do? Right. They have to cheat. They have to gerrymander. They have to erode access to the ballot box. So we've we've been saying for a long time and you've been saying it, that access to abortion is was the op eye opening experience for most Americans sure. about the crisis in our democracy. So what else can be done? You know, we've got to have court reform and yes. we've been aggressively lobbying the Senate Judiciary Committee. I was just at a press conference yesterday with Hank Johnson on the Judiciary Act to expand the court. We have to look at every tool in the toolbox. Congress can and should regulate the courts. Yeah. And President Biden has done incredible work with record number of nominees, but the work's not done. And we've got to get every one we can, because that's how we got into this mess with James Ho. And it, it appears that Donald Trump, who created, with the help of um, the far-right Heritage uh, Foundation, this court, Yes. Um, was bragging in that apostasy of a town hall about, I got rid of Roe. And then he might probably will probably be their nominee. So this is going to keep coming back on this electoral issue. Uh, Trisha Cotham, the woman who betrayed her constituents by flipping on abortion and now her whole story about, oh, I had an abortion. It's all George Santosi to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Because she decided I don't care about any of that. It, that, that could be an immediate, right? There are electoral possibilities where you, pe women can get revenge and men who agree with women who want women to have freedom.
You know, I think there's so much electoral opportunity around this, but I just want to be clear. We need Democrats to be unequivocal, authentic, yeah. and really strong. There's no room to be, you know, less than 100% vocal around these attacks. Yeah. That means white male politicians, not just women, and we need them to be shouting from the rooftops where they stand on this issue. Yeah. Because things like Trisha Cotham, they conflate and they confuse the voting public. We've sure. got to be really clear about where we stand. I think the good news is most Democrats are. We just have to have a lot of discipline. Before that happens, what will women put the map up if we could, please, again, um, wonderful downtown Sterling Brown. It's scary to me. I feel so po- badly for women, for rape victims, for children who get impregnated because they were raped, for people who have ectopic pregnancies and have miscarriages and don't can't get treatment throughout the South. Look how far you'd have to drive if you're in Florida or Mississippi or Texas. This is like the old free states and slave states at this point. And I don't know what we do right now for the women in this region. It's uh, losing North Carolina is devastating. Um, It's important for folks to understand a ban is a ban, right? Yeah. You know, a 12-week ban is devastating and dangerous. Um, We have a lot of challenges with access to care. If you look at that map, you've got, you know, Florida was a place where folks could go, but now we don't have it. North Carolina was a place. Now we got Virginia elections. Georgia has a six-week ban, but Brian Kemp got away with that. Oh, he He sure did. He did not. There was no payback. And I think that actually sent a message to Republican politicians. You can do a six-week ban and get away with because he sure did, uh, and also with being anti-voting rights. But we will have that for another day. Minnie Tamaraju, thank you very much. Thank Always you. appreciate you being here. Coming up, uh, Elon Musk gleefully turns Twitter into an anti-Semitic racist hellscape, no matter what the cost to society in general or even to his company's bottom line. That is what we will deal with when we come back. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com podcast25. Since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, the social media platform has gone back to its old nasty habit of mainstreaming anti-Semitism, racism, and misogyny. According to a recent study under Musk's leadership, anti-Semitic tweets have increased more than 100%. And there's been a threefold increase in the rate of hateful account creation. When the Washington Post asked Musk about these findings, his response was a poop emoji. 
which is a good summation of the seriousness with which he approaches the situation. There may be a reason why the man from the old South Africa doesn't want to accept these facts. He has actively participated in this increasingly hateful, vitriolic, and anti-Semitic ideology under the guise of free speech. He's tweeted that he hates pronouns. Not sure how you'd form a sentence without them. He promoted a conspiracy theory that Paul Pelosi wasn't attacked by a right-wing election denier, an idea he got from a website known for publishing fake stories. And earlier this week, he went after George Soros, the Republicans' favorite target for anti-Semitic tropes about globalism, woke prosecutors, and replacement theory. Musk's distemper couldn't possibly have anything to do with Soros fund management dumping a bunch of shares it owned in Tesla, could it? Well, in a sign of his emotional maturity, Musk tweeted, Soros reminds me of Magneto, a reference to the X-Men character who just so happens to be a Jewish supervillain who attacks the world on behalf of mutants. When someone pointed that out to him, he replied that Soros wants to erode the very fabric of civilization. Really? Is that a fact, Elon? What is true is that Musk, what, that what Musk is doing is tapping into this popular anti-Semitic narrative that there is a secret cabal of Jewish people running the world and they are the root of any number of the world's problems. Not the billionaires. No, no, no. The Jews. He's also piling on at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise. In 2017, white supremacists marched through Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting, Jews will not replace us. In 2018, a man walked into the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh and murdered 11 congregants because Jewish people were supposedly bringing in invaders that kill our people. And this week, uh, just two days after Musk's tweet, the Jews was trending on Twitter. Coincidence? Now, this kind of language may not come as a surprise for some, considering that Musk's other company, Tesla, was found guilty by two juries of running a racially abusive factory in California. Last night, in an interview with CNBC, David Faber asked Elon about his tweets. You tweeted this thing about George Soros. Well, I'm looking for it because I want to make sure I quote it properly. But I mean, you know what you wrote, but you basically it reminds me of Magneto. This is like, you know, calm down, people. This is not like made a, like a federal well, case s- out of it. <laughs> you, also, you, know, <laughs> you said he wants to erode the very fabric of civilization and Soros hates humanity. Like when you do something like that, do you yeah, think, I think about, that's true? That's my opinion. It makes you a, a lightning rod for criticism. I mean, do you like that? I, you know, people today saying he's an anti-Semite. I don't think you are. No, I'm definitely not. I'm, okay. I'm like I'm like a pro-Semite, if anything. <laughs> The head of the Anti-Defamation League didn't quite agree with that take. In fact, he called it a dangerous tweet that emboldens extremists. The Israeli foreign ministry didn't agree either. They took the pretty rare step, particularly for such a right-wing government, a far-right-wing government, in fact, of saying Musk's comment had an anti-Semitic feeling to it. Since he bought Twitter, Musk's experiment in free speech has been a disaster for his bottom line. Why? Because there's this undeniable sense that he has turned Twitter into a free-for-all hellscape even though he promised that he wouldn't. More than half of Twitter's top advertisers have stopped advertising, and fewer people appear to be visiting the hell site. So what is he doing to assure the public and advertisers and his shareholders that he isn't an unhinged hate monger? Well, that's next. Why share it widely? I mean... Uh, I, this is freedom of speech. I'm allowed to say what I you want. You absolutely are, but I'm trying to understand why you do. See, you just don't care. You want to share what you have to say. 
I'll say what I want to say, and if, 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 uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Well, as you can see, Elon Musk does not care if he pushes lies and mainstreams hate, but he does care if freedom of speech gets in the way of his bottom line. At least I think he cares. Joining me now is Ben Collins, NBC News senior reporter. I guess that is the question. Uh, now I'm really not sure he does care if he loses money, does he? I, I can't imagine he does. Um, this company costs probably about half what it cost when he bought it, what, six, seven months ago now? Um, even if that this was not the plan, it's become the plan for Elon, clearly. Uh, to enact this elaborate revenge fantasy against all of his perceived enemies. You know, he's been uh, pushing these—it's not just the anti-Semitism stuff from yesterday. It's been the, been like this for months, saying that the media is uh, racist against whites, all of these things. He's been pushing Pepe memes, which are from 4chan, tied to mass shooters, including one where uh, Pepe is in, a, is in fatigues with, a, with an assault weapon. Um, I don't know what the long-term plan is here, other than to say— it mirrors almost directly every other person that's been red-pilled or radicalized on the Internet to a T. This guy has been radicalized in the same ways I've seen everybody else radicalized by the far-right Internet over the last five years. And that's been my exclusive job. So I can <laughs> identify this when I see it. And that's what's happening to this guy. Or, or... This is who he was anyway, right? Because yeah. it feels to me like the two big scandals around him have come together finally. The way that Tesla operated as this racist hellhole where black people were attacked constantly and told to go stay in the slave quarters. And this, let me play for you. This is him claiming the Texas shooter was not a white nationalist. Here he is. When you, when you link to somebody who's talking about the guy who killed children in a mall in, in Allen, Texas, and you, you say something like it might be a bad psyop. I'm not quite sure what you meant, but. Oh, uh, in, in that particular case, uh, there was uh, a uh, s somehow that, that that's not, not, not that the, 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 the that the, obviously the people, people were killed, but the it was. I think incorrectly ascribed to be a white supremacist action. Oh my God! Um, and the evidence for that uh, was some obscure Russian website that no one's ever heard of that had no followers, um, and the, the the company that came, that found this is Bellingcat. Right. And do you know what Bellingcat does? Psyops. But I'm saying that I thought this, the, the, the the ascribing it to white supremacy was. Um. This is the Reuters headline. Gunman who killed eight at Texas shopping mall had neo-Nazi ideation. He was covered in Nazi swastikas. Yes. Yes, he was, Joy. I, <laughs> look, I, can we stop this? Can we stop giving this guy softball interviews, please? My colleague Brandy Zadrazi did a TikTok video showing you exactly how you were able to find uh, this guy's stuff. It was not complicated. Right. And then if you want to ask the cops, the cops can tell you this guy had a Nazi tattoo. He had a swastika on his chest and an SS tattoo on his arm. We, we all saw this. So at some point, it's like an abdication of your journalistic duty to just like joke around with this guy who is spreading white supremacist talking points on national television. Stop yeah. saying stop giving the guy the benefit of the doubt. We know who he is by now. At this point, you're bailing out. You're taking your other reporters who have reported this out and vetted this stuff and know exactly what this guy was. He was a white supremacist. And you yeah. are tossing them to the side to get chummy with a very rich person. And I just don't like it.
And, and by the way, somebody who pretends to be a free speech absolutist, except when the Turkish autocrat wants him to suppress tweets in Turkey, which he did and defended it. That's exactly right. And by the way, Joy, um, the old administration that was the big censorship regime, remember that? Yeah. They fought back against that sort of thing. You know, they, they would fight back constantly against these, com- uh, against these countries who asked, but not Elon. Elon just let it go. Uh, because maybe at this point, I think it's pretty clear we can start asking the question. Maybe he has more in common with those kinds of people Hello. than a regular American. Last thing, he's hired somebody who actually used to work here, um, Linda Yaccarino, who is a MAGA supporter. She's a Trump fan. Um, she's going over there. And yet Elon's fans are mad. Why are they mad about this hire? OK, so she was in the board of WEF, which is the uh, World Economic Forum. They believe people, conspiracy theorists on the right, believe that WEF created the pandemic as a way to get everyone into 15 minute cities so that we could all eat bugs as protein instead of meat. This is what they all believe. And he is, you know, making those people angry who previously would have been happy with that. Guys like Cat Turd 2, who he used to take moderation decisions from. Joy, it's, it's real dark out there. It's just it's, real dark. And, and the fact that the supposedly, formerly world's richest man listens to Cat Turd, and that's who he takes advice from, that tells you all that you need to know, investors and advertisers. Y'all keep playing games with Twitter if you want to. Ben Collins, thank you very much. Uh, watch your money, y'all. That is tonight's readout. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.